All Right in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker, and me, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair. Ronaldo Walcott was joining us at this festival, I squealed with delight. I squealed with delight, and then the next thing I did was to ask Natalie Delia Decker to be the moderator for this discussion. And I squealed with delight when she said yes. Natalie Delia Decker is an incredible individual and she is an associate professor of criminology, University of Windsor, Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminology. She's an incredibly important voice in our community and throughout every community that has concern about exclusion, representation, the impact of race and other marginalized communities on our criminal justice system, and I'm so excited, I'm so excited that Natalie Delia Deckard is going to be leading this discussion with the amazing Ronaldo Walcott. Welcome, Natalie Delia Deckard. Hi everyone, I'm back. Traditional microphones rock. <laughs> Welcome, my name is Natalie Delia Deckard, and I have the honor today of introducing Ronaldo Walcott to the Windsor Book Festival and to this talk about On Property. I want to introduce Ronaldo using his biography, but then I actually want to contextualize that some and tell you how important he is, really, not just on the pages. Ronaldo Walcott is a professor in Women and Gender Studies at the University of Toronto. His research area is Black Diaspora Cultural Studies, Gender, and Sexuality. All of that is true. <laughs> also, Ronaldo Walcott is the author of Black Like Who? Writing Black Canada, Queer Returns, Essays on Multiculturalism, Diaspora, and Black Studies. In 2021, Walcott published The Long Emancipation, Moving Towards Freedom. And On Property, which I've seen a lot around, Policing Prisons and the Call for Abolition, which has been nominated for the Heritage Toronto Book Award, long listed for the Toronto Book Awards, a Globe and Mail Book of the Year, and is listed in CBC Books' Best Canadian Nonfiction of 2021. These are unbelievably impressive accomplishments, they are all true. <laughs> I migrated from the United States as an already established scholar three years ago. So from the other side of the human experience to here. And when I arrived, one of the first things I was asked was, do you know Ronaldo Walcott's work? And I said, I've heard of him. I have a to-read list that's a few hundred long, and I was told for the first time, you better get on that. <laughs> and the second time I was told, 
wait a minute, no, 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 you have to have multiple highlighted copies. And the third time when I was told, what have you been doing? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Three years later, Irene Moore Davis said, are you willing to moderate a talk for Bookfest? Your work at the intersection of migration, class, gender, race, and racialization, your work in criminalization means that it could be a really good conversation and part of the public discourse. And I said, oh my gosh, who, me? And she said, well, I have a copy of the book that I would give you, if you would agree. And I said, I have two copies, the upstairs version and the downstairs version. What do you think I'm running here? Because that is the stature of the author that I have the honor of introducing today. Ronaldo Walcott, everybody, let's welcome him. Thank you so much, Natalie, for that wonderful introduction. Much of it was not true. <laughs> um, it's a real pleasure to be here this morning in Windsor, a place that I consider sacred black ground, even though black people are often disappeared from it. So it's especially special for me to always come to Windsor and to be at Bookfest. Uh, it's an honor, so thank you for this wonderful invitation. Um, this tiny little book that Dan Walsh got me to write and ushered me through condenses like 400 years black life in the Americas and even beyond into like less than 100 pages. So bear with me if I skip over some things. But what I want to do is read about a couple of passages and then we will have our conversation. <clears throat> in the days after George Floyd's death, a battle cry was sounded to defund and abolish the police. An abolitionist mood was in the air on the streets across North America, in Canada as well as the United States, and from there spread to other countries and other continents. Enough that we could believe if only for a moment, that real change might finally be possible. How did we arrive here? What does abolition mean in our time? And if we see abolition as a form of justice, how do we get there? More than any other idea arising out of contemporary black social protest movements, including the recent Black Lives Matter movement, abolition has ignited imaginations in a manner that is essential for real change. For those of us who have long thought of abolition as an answer to what seems like intractable global problems of racial oppression and domination, especially where black people are concerned, abolition's loud arrival in this moment, in the eventful circumstances of George Floyd's death, was thrilling to see and reason for at least a cautious optimism. Not since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 have we witnessed a global cry for freedom like it. It's important to note that many leading abolitionist figures, like the internationally celebrated African-American 
African-American activist Angela Davis came to their political positions through a radical politics of black power and communism. Abolition has come to occupy the place that the promise of communism once held for many of us. Indeed, in a recent lecture, the renowned African-American critical feminist geographer and abolitionist scholar Ruth Wilson Gilmore described abolition as a small-c communism without a party. Questions surrounding property and its ownership remain central to any politics that has collective practices as its foundation. Abolitionist thinkers and practitioners foresee a future in which the problem of property is resolved through its renew removal. We do not want to abolish the police and we do not want to abolish the police and the courts. We want to abolish everything. We want freedom and we know and understand in a way that our own history has taught us that abolition is the only route towards it. Our present demand for abolition has a much longer history. Our idea of property has been reduced so as to become synonymous with real estate and everything that this entails. We are told that other kinds of property, such as motor cars, boats, jewelry, phones, running shoes, and so on, an imaginable register of things need to be protected from those not fortunate enough to own such property. We must be protected from the covetous by the police and the entire carceral system. This is why abolish, abolishing property and creating new meanings for and understandings and relationships around the things that make life livable and enjoyable is central to all abolitionist claims. Many kinds of criminalization are associated with property, each bringing with it an entire system of punishment. But what if property did not exist in the way we have come to know it? What if it did not exist at all? How else might we come to understand and relate to things? How else would we process and sanction those who transgress against us and our things? The commons as both an idea and a practical means of organizing life has consistently been reduced to private property. A renewed idea of the commons for our times brings along with it a different idea of care too, including for the earth itself. Stewardship is an essential aspect of abolition, and in this instance would include collective responsibility for our shared resources on the basis of how we care for each other. These resources are not only the earth, they also include the world's technological and accumulated wealth accrued through, the, through more than 500 years of exploitation of many of us. The realization of this vision of the commons necessitates a profound shift in how we understand life, and abolition is the name we give this wish for transformation. We must recognize that how we presently live together was learned over hundreds of years, which means that it can also be unlearned. We can learn new things, new ways of coexisting, a renewed vision and practice based on stewardship of the global commons, and an ethic of care that begins with attending to the most vulnerable among us first would open us up to an altogether different but better way of living together. This would of course involve a different relationship to property. 
our stewardship of the commons would return human beings to our natural place as one species among others. Property would not be owned that would be used to advance the well-being of all life forms, human and otherwise. This perspective draws from indigenous cultures around the world, but this is also singular, significantly influenced by communism insofar as the logic of the communal is what makes it possible. Individualism is a learned cultural trait and practice. Communalism can also be learned and practiced. The change will not happen overnight. What I'm outlining here will take time, but I feel strongly that it is the direction that we must move to ensure our planet's survival. I will never tire of saying it. Property sits at the nexus of our freedom, and not just black people's freedom. Abolishing property will free all of us and would lead to the establishment of new relationships between people and animals, the environment, and much else besides. Ruth Wilson Gilmore sees abolition as not only red, as in small c communism, but also as green, by which she means to signal that abolition's rethinking of how we can live better together includes the development of a green economy as a response to the environmental and ecological disaster we are hurtling towards. Abolition's purpose is to do more than save black people. It is also to save the species from its self-destructive self. The destruction warped on this world since millions of Africans, flora and fauna were transported to the Americas and the intense unabated horrors that produced the Industrial Revolution and our current technological and digital regimes now require us to fully remake our world if we are to survive. Abolition stands as both the philosophical and practical mode of that urgent remaking. When I mentioned to a friend that I was writing this pamphlet on abolition of property, he reminded me about the case of Matthew da Costa. Reputed to be the first black man to have come to Canada, historians believe da Costa worked as a multilingual translator for Samuel de Champagne. After his service ended, a dispute apparently occurred and he ended up in a prison in New France. That this first black person in Canada ended up in prison here seems to me more than a coincidence. His spirit haunts this nation's founding. And of growth of the violence of enslavement, the prison is all its permutations, continues to subject, subordinate, and dispose of black life. The Caribbean American philosopher Sylvia Winter has argued that the task ahead of us is to reinvent the world as we know it. Abolition is the foundation of that reinvention. Thank you. I think it falls to me as moderator to underline how revolutionary these words are and to highlight the fact that we are in a space, we are in a time, and that just happens. Thank you. I wonder, I was told once that one of the greatest violences of late capitalism is its systematic theft of our ability to imagine any other way. Implicit in that statement is the idea that responses 
to your words, like that could never happen, <laughs> are not simple ignorance, but rather a structural violence in which we are quit of what is our right as part of the human condition. I'm wondering, Ronaldo, what are your thoughts about the degree to which the revolutionary nature of your words and your writing is revolutionary on purpose and that's done to us to rob us? Or not? That's a great question. I think what I'll say is the feminist abolitionist thinker and organizer Maria Kaba always responds to this question of how late modern capitalism has really shrunk our sense of what it means to imagine a different world by saying we've had 350 years of policing so it seems normal it seems like the only way to do things but if we had 350 years of no police <laughs> that would seem normal too the ideas that i'm trying to share here are ideas that require time the length of time in which we've been organized to become immune to certain kinds of violences people living on the street that we can just walk by, step over them. That's been imbued in us over a long sedimented period of time. So we need a long sedimented period of time for some of these other ideas to take hold. But part of my argument and part of what I'm saying is that all of this is invented by us, it's learned by us, it's not magical, it's not otherworldly, we create it, we bring others into it, we tutelage others into it, and so we can unlearn it, we can invent new ways of being, we can learn new ways to be together, we can recast how it is we understand what care and violence is. And that's the challenge to us. What are we willing to take up as a way of figuring out how we can live much better together? Because we all know that we are currently not living well together. And so the kind of question is, what will it take for us to begin to transform these modes of being that we already know are fundamentally simply not working? Thank you for that. I'm also particularly interested in the passage in the way that your formulation of police abolition and prison abolition inextricably intertwined with the abolition of private property. I want to say inextricably again to trouble my understanding. Are those two things inextricable? And why? Yeah. In the modern world, policing and property are inextricable because modern policing comes from, directly comes from, the history of the plantation and the ownership of black bodies as property. And policing was invented so that those black bodies that were owned as property would not reclaim themselves. So we can't actually conceive of policing without conceiving of, of property immediately. They are inextricably linked. And it's one of the reasons, and I talk about this in the book, in the pamphlet, it's one of the reasons that policing and black people become such a terrible, terrible cocktail. Because every time 
that black people encounter the police, whether it's simply from a ticket to the thing that usually grabs our attention are the spectacular deaths and murders, but the very foundation and logic of policing and understanding of it is so tied to black people owning their bodies that policing becomes an affront to the free black person or to the black person who is attempting to be free. And so it always ends up in a kind of conflagration. But because policing comes from this idea of property, once it evolves, modern policing continues to hold that kernel of truth in it. So if we think about all of the ways in which the mayors of our cities, the premiers of our provinces, the prime ministers of our nations, whenever there's a fundamental problem, the response is to hire more policing. The response to hire more police. The response is to use languages of policing, rather than to think of other ways in which we might respond to these particular kinds of problems. So policing is not only related to property, it has become a part of the kind of foundational way in which we organize how we live together. And so if we got rid of policing, we will be forced to reorganize how we live together. We will be forced to think differently about what our social relations might look like. Thank you for that. I think it was on Black Twitter, so that's how official this is. Uh, <laughs> someone said, white people call 911 like customer service. And for some reason, this really hit me beyond the easy humor. Who is the customer of what? What is the service that is expected? What is the entitlement? Part of the entitlement is that white people don't see themselves as being implicated in being property. They see themselves as owning property. And that's why the call to the police, because the police is to protect property while others, whether or not they articulated the way I'm going to articulate it now, who have been property or who have a history of those kinds of property relations have an entirely different relationship to the police. So it doesn't mean that black people don't call the police. In fact, I talk about, in this book, I talk about surveys that demonstrate that black people and in some black communities argue that they want more policing. But that's conditioned by the fact that they have been so deprived of particular kinds of services that they too believe policing solves the problem. But the question of white people turning to the police is very much built into that long foundational history of how policing emerges. It emerges out of slave patrols that were meant to return runaway slaves, that were meant to question black people moving around, and so on. So. It comes from that history of having owned others. And so you don't see yourself as property, you see yourself as protecting your property. And that's what policing is understood to be doing. So that's when I read that passage about our cars or jewelry and so on. The idea that we are always must be protective of what is ours, our property. And who supposedly does that for us when we've been transgressed but the police. I want to engage with the excellent passage that you read in one more way. 
before moving forward into another passage. There's a lot of conversation around reparations. I come at this question, I want to be clear from, from the perspective of someone who is of Cuban descent. You can never come from that history without believing that you have to redistribute to even begin to have a conversation about anti-racism or racial equity. But I don't find that in Canada the conversations are in any way connected up until this book, which is shocking to me, and only me. <laughs> I want to know what your thoughts are about the word reparation in light of the arguments that you're making. Canada is a really interesting geopolitical space when it comes to these kinds of questions because of course what we live in our various and multiple cities across this country is at variance with a significant variance and discrepancy with Canada's reputation globally which is to say that Canada continues to have a reputation globally as a place of safety, refuge, as a kind of multicultural mecca and so on. And yet the reality in many of our cities speaks directly opposite to that. So the kind of question, how does one engage a question of reparations in the Canadian context? It means that one has to make sure that Canada is rejoins its history as a part of the historic and unique trade in human flesh, the transatlantic slavery, how Canada, whether we're talking about New France that becomes Quebec, and what becomes Ontario and these other regions as they eventually come into Confederation, benefited from that historic trade. The codfish that is now disappeared, sent to the Caribbean to, slick, to feed people who were enslaved, a shipbuilding industry out of Nova Scotia, uh, helped to build slavers that ply the waters to bring Africans into the Americas. There's just a long history, the St. Lawrence Canal that becomes a waterway for the kinds of commodities and exports in and out that produce the very foundations of Canada's economic possibilities. So you have to do that and then you've got to think about all of the multiple and varied black communities. So when we think about this region that we're in, we like to think about it as, as only a site of the escape from slavery across the border and not, about, and not as a place where slavery was also actually practiced. Or when we think about Halifax and Nova Scotia, Cape Breton, outside of Halifax, North Preston and so on, these historic sites of black inhabitants and residents that brings Canada firmly into a world of racialized domination and so on. So the kind of question of then of how we talk about reparations has very much, in Canada, has very much to do with offering another account of what is Canadian history first and to bring Canadians into understanding that largely the contemporary story of Canada's a place of refuge as this multicultural mecca is fundamentally a myth. And, um, and that's hard work again because people are really committed to that narrative. That, that narrative means a lot to many people. You talk to people who are the descendants of black people from North Preston and they're going to tell you a different story of their lives. You talk to the people who are descendants of folks from Amherstburg, 
they're going to tell you a different story of their lives. You talk to the folks who are descendants of folks from Chatham, they're going to tell you a different story of their lives, of Windsor and so on. So it is this reckoning that we are yet to ever fully have in the Canadian context because there's always a way to preempt it in, in some shape or form that becomes at stake in terms of thinking about how we can even really adequately and effectively begin a conversation about reparations. In the spirit of we exist in a moment in this room and it is a space of revolutionary idea, you just told a room full of people in Canada that Canada is part of the Americas and that the map is right and no one walked out. <laughs> and I think that's amazing. I want to push us forward into another passage that really spoke to you in terms of this event and invite you to please share it with us. Between 2004 and 2016, the black population in Canada's federal prisons has grown by about 70% and currently constitutes about 8% of the incarcerated population, up from 6% in 2002 to 2003. This is vastly disproportionate to the 3.5% of the general population made up by black people. In contrast, 7.29% of Canadians identify as white but the latter only make up 54.2% of the prison population. In 2020, Bill Blair, the federal minister responsible for corrections, announced that due to this apparent overrepresentation, the federal government would begin collecting specific data on black inmate population. But it is Canada's indigenous communities which have suffered the most egregious treatment and fates eerily similar to those of black people in the United States. These indigenous identifying people in Canada make up only 4.9% of the population. They make up more than 30% of the prison population, or a rate six to seven times what should be expected. And as we all know, this is only one of the numerous crises affecting indigenous people that need immediate redress. Canada's treatment of its First Nations would be a source of great, should be a source of great national shame. An abolitionist system would ensure that Indigenous people were given autonomy and resources to return to their various communities to a healthy place. These numbers are neither surprising nor fully capture the magnitude of the situation. Indeed, Gilmore's work on California tells us that since the 1980s, and I quote from her, the state initiated new rounds of criminalization as elected officials scrambled to sponsor new laws. The rationale for the laws purported to be reducing violence in communities. The means was sentence enhancement or intensified incapacitation to prevent people from committing crimes by keeping them in cages. The black revolts of the mid-1960s in the U.S. and the U.K., and to a much lesser degree here in Canada, it's important to understand that similar revolts happened here too. The 1969 to George Williams affair being one prominent example, ushered in politicians called criminal justice reform, an expanding of categories, length of incarceration, and other measures meant to make the prison a permanent element in how society manages 
targeted populations while further embedding prisons in the economy. In many cases, those reforms enhance punishments for crimes largely associated with poverty. This left black people more at risk due to our historic poverty from slavery to the present. The kinds of crime that fuel incarceration cannot be divorced from the dreadful outcomes of black lives that flow from slavery and its afterlife. Treating drug crimes, loitering, traffic and transit violations, shoplifting, and other crimes of a similar nature as significant punishable transgressions only further exacerbates historic wrongs. And when uprisings occur in black communities as a result of police brutality, they ironically tend to result in still more black people having encounters with the criminal punishment system. It isn't participating in uprisings that lands most black people in prison, but rather the business of everyday policing. The economy of stereotype is what, lands, is what leads police to stop, question, and then find some infraction. And it's far too often the way black people get caught up in the criminal punishment system. Renata, how do we move forward? Help. <laughs> I don't know if I can provide a blueprint for how we move forward, but I will hazard to say that one way we begin to move forward is that we begin to be honest about the nature of what it is we are actually living. And that means that, for instance, simple, I know many of us in Ontario are right now in the midst of municipal elections. Simple things like politicians calling for more fines, trespassing tickets for people who are without houses does not help us to move forward. It actually keeps us mired in the same kinds of logics of punishing people for circumstances that were beyond their control. So the kind of question of how we move forward is for me always comes back to this, something I said earlier. What kind of notion of care will we have for each other? It seems to me that we are in a moment where we're fundamentally tasked with retaining what it means to care for people whom we think we share nothing in common with. And that's a kind of ethical demand, it's a kind of ethical requirement for how we move in the world, not just as individuals, but collectively. So, how do we move forward? We move forward by being honest that how we're situated is insufficient. We move forward by being honest with the fact that to respond adequately to the conditions of the lives of those who are the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, means that some of us will have to have less. It means that some of us will have to think differently of what it, about what it means to live a good life. And that's not only in relationship to other people that we might call human beings. What it means to live a good life, it's pressing on us significantly so because of what we're doing to the planet as well. This is not simply about the rescue of black people from poverty or the rescue 
of indigenous people from poverty and police brutality and so on. This is actually about people like us in rooms like this, our lives too, because we are spiraling towards something else. And if we are incapable of responding collectively to this thing that we're spiraling towards, that really significantly requires major adjustments to how we live together, then we might be, and I'm not an apocalyptic thinker, but then we might be moving towards not necessarily the end of the world, but such a radical reorganization of human life that we will be in barbarous times. I mean, we're already in barbarous times at the lower ends, but they will keep engulfing more and more of us. Thank you so much. Time is a deeply racialized and gendered construct. <laughs> that being said, we're running late again. <laughs> I want to thank each of you for attending, but way more than that, I want to thank you for speaking to us, for dropping knowledge, for just for this book, for these ideas, and how important they are right here and right now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.